The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Are prepared spiritually for learning God's Word. The Scriptures are very clear. In the Psalms, we're told that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. At the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation at the cross, you enter into a permanent relationship with God. This top circle represents eternity. Your eternal relationship with God, you are placed in Christ. You also have a temporal relationship, day to day, from moment to moment. At the moment we're saved, we enter into this bottom circle as well, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation, in fact, God does about 40 different things for us. 39 of those things are permanent. We never lose them. They're irrevocable. But the filling of the Holy Spirit can be lost by your volition. The moment we sin... We are out of fellowship. The Bible calls this the status of carnality. And that simply means that we are under the control of our sin nature. How do we get back in fellowship with the Lord? How are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Very simply, using 1 John 1.9, which says, If we, any believer, confesses, and that means to admit or acknowledge our sin, it doesn't mean we have to feel sorry for our sin, it doesn't mean that we have to... Uh, somehow make a deal with God that we won't do that anymore, simply means, it's a legal term, if we confess, admit our guilt, admit our sin, then we are immediately, instantly restored to fellowship with God. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and we can then move forward in the spiritual life. So the issues of your sins are not anybody else's business. They are between you and the Lord. So in the privacy of your own soul, you have the privilege and the opportunity now to uh, use 1 John 1.9 to confess your sins to God the Father alone and be restored to fellowship as we prepare to take in God's Word. Let's bow our heads together. Father, as we come together this morning to worship You, I am reminded of the fact that we owe all that we have to You. The air we breathe, the the beautiful weather outside, just the, uh, the food that we eat, everything that we have comes from You. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And Father, we thank You for that. We thank You above all for Your grace, especially Your saving grace, because You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as our substitute. And that we can have salvation simply by faith alone in Christ alone. That it is not dependent upon anything that we do, but totally upon what you have done in the work of Christ on the cross. So now, Father, we honor you and we worship you by coming together to study your word. That we may learn how to live as you would have us to live. That we can transform our thinking, renew our minds as the scripture commands us that we would think about life as you would have us to think and look at life from the divine viewpoint. And so we pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
Amen. We are studying in the Gospel of John, so open your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. John 1.29 This is the second day in the life of John the Baptist that we're looking at in this passage. We saw last week that as the Apostle John is opening his introduction after finishing the first 18 verses, he goes directly to the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, why do all of the Gospels start with the ministry of John the Baptist? You must understand the Old Testament. One of the tragedies, I think, today is that very, very few... Christians understand the Old Testament very well. And the Old Testament provides the backdrop for understanding the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the pattern was set. You had a prophet, for example, uh, in the history of Israel. The nation decided they wanted a king, so the prophet Samuel went to the Lord and said, they they want a king, Lord. They, They rejected me, and the Lord said, no, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. It's me they've rejected. But I have a man... And you will go anoint that man. And the word in the Hebrew for anoint is Mashiach, which is where we get our English word transliteration, Messiah. You will go anoint Saul as king. So the king was always anointed. The beginning of his reign was from the anointing by a prophet. The prophet preceded the king. John the Baptist is the last in the line of Old Testament prophets. And he precedes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we start with John the Baptist because he fits the pattern that has been established by God throughout human history that the prophet is the one who anoints the king. And the act of setting apart Jesus Christ for his public ministry is done by John the Baptist in his baptism of Jesus at the River Jordan. And this is the backdrop of the next few verses. Let me read them. Verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is the third time John the Apostle has told us that John the Baptist said that Jesus had a higher rank than him. You think he's trying to make a point that John the Baptist was simply the forerunner. He is not someone to be worshipped. And John the Baptist goes on to say in verse 31, And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water, or in water. And John bore witness, saying, I beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay. A number of things that we have to understand as backdrop to this passage. First of all, let's understand our chronology. We said last week that we start here. This four days. Mark them out here. Uh, One, two, three, four days in the life of John the Baptist. Then there's two days of travel. And then if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And the third day later, or following two days, and on the third day, 
Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana. So we have the wedding here. Now, this wedding is on a Wednesday, according to the Mishnah. When a widow remarried, it was on a Thursday. When a virgin married for the first time, it was on a Wednesday. Two days of travel take out Tuesday and Monday. The fourth day is Sunday. The third day is the Shabbat, the Sabbath. The second day would be Friday. The first day was Thursday. So these are the four days that we're looking at. And on this second day, on this Friday, Jesus comes along. He's walking along and comes down to the Jordan where John is baptizing. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John talks about how he beheld. And notice the verb. It's a past tense. This is not the episode of John's baptizing of Jesus. That has already occurred. That is covered in detail in the synoptic Gospels. They're called synoptics because they're synonymous. They cover roughly the same thing, approach the life of Christ from roughly the same way. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about John's baptism of Jesus. That has already taken place. What happens in the life of Christ is he comes down to the River Jordan, X point. John baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan, and then he is immediate, Jesus is immediately led away into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit where he goes through 40 days and nights of fasting and then testing. When he returns, he returns to John to the Jordan on this Friday from his wilderness testing. This also fits the Old Testament pattern. The king would be anointed and then there would be a test an objective verification and validation that God indeed had anointed and chosen this man as king. So he's anointed, then there's some sort of military test where he had victory over the enemies of Israel, and then he is recognized as king. This is clear in the case of David. David is anointed by Samuel, and then he just nothing happens for a while And then there's the episode with Goliath, where David defeats Goliath to exemplify his responsibility and his ability to defeat the enemies of Israel. So Jesus goes through the 40 days and nights of of, uh, fasting, and then the three tests, the three temptations by Satan, and then he returns, and John makes these statements. The backdrop is a very, very important doctrine, and that is the doctrine of baptism. And I want to address this, and we're probably going to need two or three Sundays to do this. But I want to talk very much about the doctrine of baptism, and specifically the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then relate that to the whole issue that has been raised by the Pentecostal and Charismatic claims, and um, see how all of that ties together. So we're sort of having a little parenthesis in our study of the Gospel of John to do a a study of this, but it's uh, germane to the background. So I want to, talk, want to cover the doctrine of baptism. The doctrine of baptism. Most people don't realize this, but there are eight different baptisms in the Bible. Most people, as soon as they hear the word baptism, they think of water. And yet only three of the baptisms involve, uh, involve water. Five of the baptisms do not involve water. Well, one of them does sort of on the, on the side, but five of them are dry baptisms. So baptism doesn't have to do necessarily with immersion. 
So we start off, we need to talk a little bit about the word itself. Where do we get the word baptize? Well, the English word baptize comes as a direct transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. The reason they did that is because they were theological cowards at the time they translated the English Bible. The Greek word looks like this. Baptizo. B-A-P-T-I-Z-O. And it means to dip, plunge, or immerse. Well, at the time they began translating the Bible in the Middle Ages, like Wycliffe and Tyndale and others leading up to the King James Bible, they had been practicing infant baptism and sprinkling as a form of baptism for a thousand years or more. And baptism, because of the identity of church and state, baptism had become so closely connected with the idea of citizenship in the state that if you challenged the form of baptism, you were also making a political statement. And so when the Anabaptists, that word means second baptizers, these were the first Baptists that came out of the Protestant Reformation, and, uh, and they asserted the fact that in the Bible it taught believers' baptism, that you were not to be baptized until after you made a profession of faith, that you said you believed in Christ alone for salvation, then you would be baptized. And people like Felix Mons and Conrad Grable and, and um, Georg Blaurock and a few others uh, departed from Ulrich Zwingli's Bible classes, and they affirmed immersion. And as a result, they were all drowned because uh, that was also viewed as a political statement. So nobody had the, um, shall we say, the theological nerve to translate the word, because if they did, it would create tremendous furor. So they just transliterated it. So we're stuck with the word, uh, English word baptism. It meant to uh, dip or plunge or immerse, and it has a significance, though, that goes beyond its basic uh, meaning, and that is that it often signified identification. So there was usually some kind of immersion of one thing into another to symbolize the first thing's identification with the second. The word has a rich history in Greek literature. goes back to the uh, 5th century and 6th century B.C. in Greece. Xenophon in the 4th century described how new recruits in the Spartan army dipped their spears in the blood of pigs before going into battle. This identified the spear with the pig's blood. It, it was inaugurating it into military action, changing it from just a spear to a warrior spear. Euripides, in the 5th century B.C., used the word to describe a sinking ship. As the ship sank, the character of the nature of the ship was changed. It was now to be identified with the water itself. It no longer floated above the water. It became one with the water. So its significance beyond its basic meaning of dipping, plunging, or immersion was to connote identification. Now, there are two categories of baptism in Scripture. The first is ritual baptism. The second is real baptism. In ritual baptism, uh, there is the, the effect is symbolic and water is used. And there are three ritual baptisms. The first ritual baptism is the baptism of John the Baptist. I don't need to write this out. I made a little overhead. First one, well here it's the baptism of Jesus. Now the baptism of Jesus is a unique baptism. 
John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. But remember, John's message was, repent, change your mind. Repent does not mean to feel sorry for your sins. Repent translates the Greek word metanoeo, which means to change your mind. Metamelamai means to have an emotion associated with it. Metanoeo means simply to change your mind, change your thinking, think differently about things. And what John was calling the Israelites to was change your mind, change your thinking about uh, God and conform to His wishes and signify that by baptism. So they were confessing their sins and they were coming to the River Jordan and so sin was associated with John's baptism. But Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus was perfect. The impeccability of Jesus Christ. He was sinless perfection. He was born without a sin nature. He never sinned. He went to the cross without a sin. And because He never sinned, He could die as our perfect substitute in our place as uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the baptism of Jesus was a unique baptism that established His ministry. It was uh, it inaugurated His ministry and identified the incarnate Christ with God the Father's plan to go for Him to go to the cross and to be judged as a substitute for the sins of the world. That passage is Matthew three, thirteen through seventeen, for the baptism of Jesus. The second baptism is the baptism of John the Baptist, which we've already alluded to. In the baptism of John the Baptist, the individual that was in the, placed in the water was identified with the coming kingdom of God. What was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this baptism was unique to John and to his ministry. And this is found in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 as well. The third ritual baptism is the baptism of believers. This is where the new believer, in affirmation of his faith in Jesus Christ alone, is immersed in water. This relates to, the, the, is symbolic of the fact that the believer has been identified with Jesus Christ in his spiritual death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. That we call the doctrine of retroactive. That's going back into the past. Retroactive positional truth. We are identified positionally in the past with what took place 2,000 years ago when Christ died spiritually on the cross, died physically on the cross, was buried, and rose again. So water baptism symbolizes what has taken place in the spiritual realm, which I think is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So these three ritual baptisms are all wet. They involve three factors. Number one, the person who performs the baptism. Let's get this. This is very, very important. If we're going to understand where we're going this morning, you've got to understand these points. Number one, there is somebody who performs the action. The subject of the verb. John the Baptist came baptizing. Who performed the action of the verb? The subject. John the Baptist. Very important to understand who performs the action whenever you have the verb baptize. Someone baptizes. That's the agent of baptism. Secondly, the element which provides the identification. The element that provides the identification. So first of all, you have the agent who performs the action. Then you have the element. In the case of water baptism, the element 
is water. You will see in the real baptisms that there are different elements. Third, there is the person identified. The person identified, the individual who is baptized, who receives the action of the verb. The person identified. And fourth, there is a new status. He's been identified with something. It is a new status. Under With Jesus, the new status was his work as the Savior inaugurating his ministry, which led to the cross. For John the Baptist, for the recipients of John's baptism, the new status was identification with the kingdom of God. So there is a new status. Now that we have said that, we need that to analyze the five real baptisms in the Scripture. What is the first of these real baptisms? The first of these real baptisms is Noah's baptism. The baptism of Noah. And we need to look at this passage, and you will find it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. So turn with me to Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Towards the end of the New Testament, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now, it's always important to look at a context. One of the things that is so important in interpreting the Bible is to look at the context. A, a te- we always heard in seminary, a text without a context is a pretext. It's a good statement. Good little aphorism. Many people teach wrong things because they just yank Scripture right out of its context. The context is talking about salvation. Verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then Peter's going to tell us a little bit about what happens after the crucifixion, before the resurrection, in which, that is in the Spirit, also He, Jesus, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now these are angels. In prison. Now, who were these angels in prison? Well, we saw this in the first hour when we talked briefly about the episode at Noah's flood. That when the angels of God came down and took the daughters of men, and those were, the angels of God are called sons of God in the Old Testament. When they came down and took wives from the daughters of men, they developed sort of a half demon, half human race. And those demons were punished by God. The human race was punished by the flood. The demons were pun- those demons who were involved in that were punished by incarceration in Tartarus. And these are those demons. They made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, here's the situation. As I have stated several times in our study, judgment always precedes grace. There is a judgment of sin that precedes grace. So the judgment here is going to be accomplished through water. Water is not the instrument of Noah's baptism. It is the element of judgment, not the element of baptism. Who is saved? You have eight people in a box. That's what ark literally means is a box. And that's pretty much what it was shaped like. It was long, and it was wide, and it wasn't very deep. And the ratio was such that it would take 
uh, quite an enormous wave to, to topple it. It had such a, um, uh, a the, 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 dim, I mean, the, the statistics on it in terms of its width to height are making one of the most stable crafts ever built in human history. In fact, it wasn't until 1859 that anybody ever built a, a boat as large as the Ark had an incredible carrying capacity of about 750 boxcars, uh, railroad boxcars, which means that it had the, carrying capa- it had the capability of carrying um, uh, all of the animals required with much room left over. If, if you just took two of every clean, unclean and seven of every uh, clean kind of animal that's alive today, and of course many species have... Uh, uh, become extinct since Noah's flood. But if you just took all the ones that we know of today, they would only that would only take up half that space, less than half of that space. So there was an enormous amount of room in the ark. Eight people were saved because these were the ones. The ark is the the element here. They're the ones who are identified with Noah, with the ark, and they are saved. They are the ones who are saved in a new state, which is the new state is the new world. So, if we go back to our pattern and we ask, who does the identification here? That would be God. God identified them in the element, which was the ark. The person identified are the eight involved. And the new status is that they survived into the coming new world. And now we come to verse 21. The real bugaboo, which I spent a large number of hours this week trying to exegete from the Greek. One of the reasons I do all of my work in the Greek shows up in this very study we're looking at this morning. And that is that often uh, our translations are just inadequate at best, pathetic and wrong at worst. And this is just a very inadequate translation. It starts off with the relative particle ha, H-O. Now, a relative is like who, which, what, something like that, starting a relative clause. And it is a nominative neuter. Well, normally that goes back to the, its reference is to the closest noun to it that's in the neuter case. Because a, a, a relative has to agree in, in a number case and gender with its referent. And the preceding neuter is water. But water is not what they're identified with. This is why this passage gets so tough, because you have to have some kind of doctrinal understanding or theological grasp of what's happening here, or you're just going to totally misconstrue the whole passage. It says it starts off with this word, which. Now, this cannot refer simply to water, and there are a number of cases where you have to use a neuter because it refers to a whole episode, a whole clause. And that's what it's referring to, the whole episode of eight people being brought safely through the water. That's what it's talking about. Which, which, and then the next word in the Greek is kai, which is translated also, K-A-I, also, which also... And this is why it gets kind of rugged. Antitupon. This is the Greek. Antitupon. Now this is made up of two words. A-N-T-I, the prefix, and tupos, T-U-P-O-N, which is the main word. Type and antitype. Now I don't know if you've ever been taught about typology. But this is a very classic case. The Bible often uses types. There's a type is a shadow, a foreshadowing, a model, 
an example, such as, as we've talked about, the Noah's Ark is a model of our salvation. Just as the eight people in the Ark were saved in the midst of judgment, so every believer who is in Jesus Christ will be saved in judgment. It is an example. The type is what you have in the Old Testament. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist says. In the Old Testament, they took the Lamb as part of the Levitical sacrifice. It was a Lamb without spot or blemish to signify that the, the Savior would be pure. He would be sinless perfection. The Lamb, would, who is innocent, is taken and is put on the altar and His throat is cut. His death signified or was an example of what would take place when Christ died on the cross as our substitute. So you have the type, which is the example, and the antitype is what it stands for. By translating this in the New American Standard corresponding, you lose the whole concept here of type and antitype, which is Peter's whole point. So you can't understand this from the English at all. So it starts off, which also, this is horrible translation I'm giving you right now, just word for word, which also antitype, and then the next word is baptism. Okay, which, and that's also in the nominative case, baptism, and then you have the phrase now, right now in the church age, now saves. Well, now you have to make sense of that, some sort of sense of that in the English. And the best way to do that is to say, which also, this is an, no definite article here, so it's probably indefinite, which also an antitype, that is baptism. This is an, um, uh, an apostrophe phrase that explains the antitype. Which also an antitype, baptism, now saves. So the, the subject of the word saves is antitype and baptism. It's the antitype, it's of the baptism that now saves, and it's the antitype of what took place in the ark. So the ark is, a, is the type, the example of what saves. And what saves is called a baptism. So if what saves is a baptism, then what happened with Noah must also be a baptism, an identification. So there is an identification that those who are placed in the ark are saved. And the analogy is that those who are placed in Christ are the ones who are saved. Now this, we will get to later, is the baptism. It's the fifth of our real baptisms. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. That they, we are, every single believer, at the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is placed in union with Christ, identified with His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, Peter wrote this at the beginning, very beginning of the church age, in the apostolic age. So the now here must refer to the church age as opposed to any preceding ages. Secondly, to understand some background here, Peter had heard Jesus announce that the baptism of the Spirit was future. Church age, very beginning. Inauguration of Christ's ministry, John the Baptist says, there is one who is coming, future tense, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes to the cross. 
in his instructions to the disciples prior to his ascension into heaven, he says, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is yet future. Peter's talking sometime about 60 A.D., and he says, it's a done deal. It's happened by now. We've received it. Point number three here would be that Peter declared that this prophecy, the prophecy of the coming of the Holy Spirit, was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. He does that in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter uh, 2 and then in Acts 11, 15 through 17. states that this is a past event. Fourth point, the baptism of the Spirit had never occurred prior to the day of Pentecost. This is something unique. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is unique to this age. Never before in human history had the Holy Spirit performed anything like this. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the church age is unique and demonstrates that the Holy Spirit has a unique and vital role in relationship to the life of the believer. So Peter then puts together the type, Noah's Ark, and the antitype, Jesus Christ, and uses the Ark as a demonstration, as an example of what takes place with the baptism of the Holy Spirit at salvation. So what we learn, what we learn that is so important from this is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit relates to salvation. Not to spiritual life, but to salvation. That is very, very important. Another thing we learn from this is found in the next phrase. He says, and he says, and which or which also an antitype baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So he makes it very clear here. In fact, this is a double, a double, double entendre. That's not pronounced double. It's pronounced double. Hyphenated word entendre. That means he's using a figure here, a statement here that has two meanings. And the double entendre, the first meaning is, the first meaning is that he's, it's not water. He's not talking about water baptism and immersion. It's not the removal of physical dirt from the outer skin. But there's another nuance here, because flesh is often used to refer to the sin nature, and so he's also signifying that this is not the removal of the sin nature. There's always people who believe in a doctrine called perfectionism, that after salvation... Your sin nature is not as powerful as it was before you were saved. That somehow at salvation it's partially removed or eradicated and you're able in spiritual growth to achieve a level of spiritual perfection where you're sinless. Well, Usually they get that way because they forget about a whole lot of sins like arrogance and pride and gossip and maligning and judging others and all sorts of mental attitude sins like that, like worry and anxiety and whatever it might be. And they get their focus just on some overt sins and think that, well, just because they haven't performed their terrible two or or fearsome five or nasty nine, that they're going to go to heaven because now they're sinless. But that's not what Peter is saying here. So he negates both of these. Number one, he says this baptism that saves isn't water baptism. 
Water baptism doesn't save. So the people who think that you are regenerated by baptism are out to lunch here. Secondly, it's not the removal of sin nature. So the the, um, uh, perfectionists, they're going to be wrong as well. So the focus here is on there is on the idea of water, which shows that there is some sort of analogy between water and its cleansing aspects and the Holy Spirit and His cleansing us from sin at salvation. What does Titus three five say? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. Now, how did He save us? By the washing of regeneration. Notice the connection here. We're going to see how all these doctrines of salvation interconnect and overlap. By the washing of regeneration. Now, this takes place in the spiritual realm. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of... By means of the Holy Spirit. So right there we see this connection here. That there's something that the Holy Spirit does at salvation. Or that the Holy Spirit is involved in at salvation. That is related to the cleansing function of the believer from all sin. Okay, now hold those thoughts. Because now we're going to look at some other baptisms. The first baptism that we saw that was a real baptism was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The second baptism that we're going to look at is in 1 Corinthians 2.2. So turn back with me several books to 1 Corinthians 10.2. This is the baptism of Moses. The baptism of Moses. Now remember, let's go back to our analogy and try to draw a diagram. Here you have your baptizer the agent, the action, the person who performs the action of the verb. Then you have an element, E for element. In water, the baptizer would take the subject, put the subject in the water. The subject comes out of the water in a new status. Okay? So you have your elements. The subject, the element, the uh, person being baptized, and the status. Okay? See how we can plug this into what we read in 1 Corinthians 10.2. Now, you're not going to get this out of your English. You just won't. This is why it's so important that you have a pastor that studies and teaches from the original languages. Because what I'm teaching you today is something that was really screwed up because all people had was an English Bible. And English Bibles do not always... What usually happens in translation is you have a group of people translating the Bible. So you have John over here translating the Gospels and Bill over here translating the Epistles and they have the same phrase and Bill translates it one way and John translates it the other way. And then somebody comes along with their English Bible and they see these two different phrases and they conclude it's two different events. When in the Greek it's the same phrase, it's the same event. Now, I don't mean to suggest that you can't get anything out of your English Bible, but you can only get elementary things out of an English Bible. There are a lot of critical things related to the spiritual life that you can only get by studying in the original languages. Okay, here we're talking about the Jews in the Old Testament and the Exodus. 10.1 for context. 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. In other words, the cloud was the Shekinah glory of the Lord. As all the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. It was the Shekinah glory, the personal representation of God leading the people. And what happened? They came to the Red Sea. They couldn't cross. Moses held out his staff. The waters parted. There was dry land. They went across and they were rescued and they were saved. And the Egyptians followed them and the waters closed in and destroyed them. So water with Noah was judgment, wasn't it? That didn't save anybody. It killed them all. Water here kills all the Egyptians. It doesn't save anybody. It's a dry baptism because the Jews went through and they were, they were dry. All were baptized into Moses. Okay? In the Greek, you have the phrase ace. It's an ace clause. This is the new status. Ace. All were baptized into Moses. That's the new status. With John's baptism, you're going to be baptized, repent for the kingdom of his hand. You're being baptized into the kingdom. And that is also indicated by an ace clause, as we shall see. So it's this ace clause that indicates that new status. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In the cloud and in the sea is represented by this preposition in the Greek, en. And en can be translated in, with, or by. So that indicates the element. They went through the sea. They walked between that wall of water to the other side. And that's, their, that's the element that they were identified with into the new status of being with Moses. Okay, now that's our... Baptism of Moses. Now, the third real baptism goes beyond that. I'm going to leave that up on the board. Is the baptism of fire. When John the Baptist announced Jesus' coming, he said that one will come after me who will baptize by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. And there he uses that phrase, in. By means of the fire and by me, by means of the spirit and by means of fire. So the third real baptism is the baptism of fire, which identifies all unbelievers who survive the tribulation with fire. The unbelievers who survive are going to um, uh, go through fire, and they will be judged. Christ will purify the earth with fire, and this is covered in Matthew 3:11 through 12, Matthew 25:31 through 46. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, Revelation 19, 11. The fourth is the baptism of the cross. The fourth real baptism is the baptism of the cross where Jesus Christ was identified with our personal sins when He was judged for them as our substitute. That's in Mark 10, 38 through 39. The fourth real baptism is the baptism of the cross where Christ is identified with our personal sins when He is judged for them as our substitute. And the fifth real baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12:13. Now, if you notice, I said baptism of the Holy Spirit because we talk loosely with throw our prepositions around. This is very important, and I want you to turn with me first of all to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Okay, um 
Matthew 3, verse 11. John says, As for me, I baptize you. I'm going to ask you several rhetorical questions. I baptize you. Who's the subject of the verb? I. John the Baptist. So in our little diagram up here, in this case, John is the baptizer. He's the subject of the verb. I baptize you, that is, you the recipient. What we have here in the diagram is S. I baptize you with water. Now, notice how the translator in English translated that with water. It's not what it says in the Greek. In the Greek, it's our preposition in. In plus the dative of hudor, which is the word for water. In plus the dative can signify a number of different things, but many times and most often it indicates means or instrumentality. And that's what this is. I baptized you by means of water for repentance. Ace, for. Ace, repentance. So this is the status here. In John's baptism, the new status was a status of repentance. It was signified by means of water. The English translator used the word with. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you. Who's the he here? The he here is Jesus Christ, isn't it? Jesus Christ, what's the verb? Future tense, will baptize. Jesus Christ will baptize. So when he announces this in prophecy, he says, Jesus Christ is the baptizer. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In numity in the Greek. I'll write it right up here. E-N-P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I. That is N plus the dative of means of pneuma, which is the word for spirit. N. N. Means. He will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mention anything about ace related to that statement. These are technical terms. This is like a formula. And it never... ...in and to repentance. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12.13. 1 Corinthians 12.13 This is the foundational passage on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized. For by one Spirit we were all baptized. Now, what did John, what did, what did Matthew say? With one Spirit. I'll give you a little historical background. This country was founded, and during the 19th century there were a lot of revivals that took place. Frontier expansion, people went out to small towns. There were more demands for ministers than there were seminaries to train them all. And so what you had in these little communities when these people gathered, somebody said, I've got the gift of the ghost. 
and he started teaching. And uh, he didn't know Greek, Hebrew. He probably didn't, wasn't even sure what, this, what the gospel was. He was long on emotion and short on any content. And what happened is you, through the 19th century, you had the development of what was called the holiness movement because they were concerned that Christians should live more holy lives. And they were uh, self-righteous and they decided that uh, in their lack of any knowledge of the original languages that there were two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. There was a baptism prophesied where Jesus performed it in, in Matthew and where that was with the Spirit. And there was another baptism that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 that was by the Spirit. And you got one at salvation, but brother, you need to get the other one now or you just miss out on the spiritual life. And then, out of the holiness movement came the Pentecostal movement. And the Pentecostal said the sign that you've received this second work of grace, this second baptism of the Holy Spirit, is that you speak in tongues. All that was predicated on the fact that some English translator translated it with in Matthew and in or by in 1 Corinthians. Because it's the same phrase, in pneumatic. Therefore, for consistency's sake, to avoid confusion, it ought to always be translated the same. Now, I'm going to teach you something different about this that you've not heard before because there aren't that many people who understand it. I got in a conversation with a friend of mine named Dan Wallace when I was in seminary. Dan was one of these uh, guys who's greatly gifted in the languages, what I call a good grammar mechanic. And a lot of these guys who are just incredible in grammar are lousy in theology. You know, they, they can work on a car, but they can't drive one at all. And, uh, and Dan's a little screwy in his theology at some points, but... Boy, he knows Greek. And he came to seminary with five years of undergraduate Greek under his belt. So he was doing stuff when he, we were in seminary that the, you know, the doctoral students weren't even doing. And he's currently a professor at Dallas Seminary. And he came out with an intermediate grammar last year. And he's got this in the grammar. But we discussed this 20 years ago. And he pointed out this whole concept out to me. And one of the problems in, in our camp is we've recognized that the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place at salvation. But the way it's normally taught is that the, that the Holy Spirit is the one who places the believer into Christ. Well, if I say the Holy Spirit places you into Christ, who performs the action? The Holy Spirit. What did John the Baptist say? There is one who will come after me. He will baptize you by means of the Spirit. Who's performing the action? Jesus Christ. Not the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem was that you've got to understand a little theological context sometimes. In the early part of this century, in the battles with liberalism, one of the battles was in the whole realm of Trinitarian theology. The Holy Spirit is just sort of the Spirit of God. He's not really a person. And so what they tended to do was make a fundamental error in the Greek because N plus the dative can, is instrument. It's not personal. It's also called impersonal agency. But that's, and they'd say, oh, well, we can't use that. This can't be impersonal agency when you're talking about the Holy Spirit because He's a person. Well, they made a mistake. 
impersonal agency has nothing to do with whether or not the person talked about is a person or not. It's a grammatical tag. It's a grammatical term. It doesn't mean that the object of that phrase is or is not a person. I can say, you know, I was, uh, uh, when I was a kid, I was driven all over the place by my parents. They're the instrument of who drove me around. I'm viewing them as the instrument of my transportation. My statement has no effect whether or not they're a person or not. I would use an impersonal agency there in order to demonstrate that they were the instrument that moved me and drove me from one place to another. So the fact that this is impersonal agency doesn't say anything about whether or not the Holy Spirit is, an agent, is, is a person. That's not the point. Now, I know this may be going over some of your heads, but I want you to understand that you have to do accurate study of the Bible because otherwise you end up in in misunderstanding vague things. And and when there's a mist in in the pulpit, there's going to be a fog in the pew. And I want you to have this clear. At least you'll grasp the implications of this. So the point is that if we go back to this, I'll just redraw it. You've got the situation that here is the instrument, the Holy Spirit, that here is you, the brand new believer, Jesus Christ, as the subject of the verb baptize, reaches down and takes you up at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, and by means of the Holy Spirit, places you in union, which is identification, retroactive positional truth, Identification uses the Holy Spirit to identify you with His death, burial, and resurrection. In the process, you are cleansed. In the process, a human spirit is created and imputed to you at that moment, and you are regenerated. This is how they all click together. This is the whole connection. The Holy Spirit is involved in, in terms of the baptism as the means by which God cleanses you and puts you from a status of unregenerate carnality into the status of identification, positional truth, where you're positionally clean and without sin. That's the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And it occurs, there's only one. See, when the, the old guys were looking at this, and I say that reverentially, people like Charles Ryrie and uh, Bob Leitner and John Walbert I've studied with at Dallas, they were so busy fighting the personal-impersonal issue that when they came along and said that the Holy Spirit baptized places you in union with Christ, they were buying into the same problem. The Holy Spirit was doing it in 1 Corinthians, but Jesus was doing it in Matthew. And you still end up with two baptisms. There aren't two baptisms. The Greek is clear. Every time it's mentioned, it's done by means of the Holy Spirit. It never says the Holy Spirit does it. Jesus, the prophecy was that Jesus would do it. The prophecy is fulfilled in the church age, and every single believer at the moment of salvation is placed in union with Christ by means of God the Holy Spirit. What signifies it? Nothing. How do you know it? It's not experiential. The only way you know it's happened is by studying your Word. And the Bible tells you this is what happened. It's not signified by speaking in tongues or anything else. In fact, next week we're going to come back and I want to go on from 1 Corinthians 12 and talk about the whole issue of tongues and just give a brief overview of that 
and how, why that's not related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit because there's so much confusion about that today. But remember, the only way to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be completely cleansed from all sin, to have an eternal relationship with God, to be identified with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and have eternity in heaven with God, is faith alone in Christ alone. Because Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins on the cross. Nothing was left undone. It was completely finished. His last words were, Tetelestai. It is finished. That means there's nothing you need to do to get to heaven other than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? The answer was simple. It wasn't believe and be baptized. It wasn't believe and have an experience. It wasn't believe and get the Holy Spirit. It was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word and to study these important doctrines and to see how there is such tremendous connection between the various aspects of our salvation and what you have done for us, that there are many different facets to our so great salvation. And Father, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if there's anyone here this morning who is not sure of their salvation, who is not aware of where they will spend eternity or does not know where they will spend eternity, that they can have that knowledge right now. Scripture says, but these are written that ye might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. All that is necessary is forming words and thought alone. Father, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I rely on nothing else but His work on the cross for my eternal salvation. Father, now as we go throughout this week, we pray that you would strengthen us with the words of doctrine that we've stored in our soul and that we might keep our relationship with you our highest priority. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.